we go. Okay, good. Welcome, Marcus. Okay. Let me just start with a prayer. God, we pray that you speak to us this morning, that we can really listen to your voice clearly as we talk and we share about your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All the scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. That's the King James Version. And I also have here the New International Version that says, All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I like sometimes bringing two different versions because we can actually understand a little better what some words actually mean. And in this version that we have on the screen said, by inspiration. Uh, and sometimes we forget the real meaning of the word inspiration. And so when we read the NIV, it gets more clear because it says God breathed it. So it means that when it's more than when we say inspiration, um, so you are like inspired, it feels a little like there's something that you've done. Something that, okay, I breathe it in. So there's something out in the air and I breathe that in. But when we read and we say that's God breathed, it means that actually there wasn't me breathing in, but it was actually God breathing out. So the word was in God and he breathed out the word. And that's what the scripture is. We have just read from our Bibles, from the Scripture, and we are not only read, but we are used to try to understand deeply and study deeply the meaning of every word and what the Bible is telling us and teaching us. And we don't only do that, we try to apply to our lives, how does that apply to us today? And we, we, don't, we don't stop it there, we go forward and we say, God, we pray asking God to help us live in that, living according to that standard. And that's why we are well known in Brazil. There is a funny thing. Uh, people who are evangelical Christians, uh, they are known as the Bibles. Os Bíblias. Um, and it's because they, have, they always have their Bibles with them. They're always reading their, Bible, their Bibles. They're always talking about their Bibles. So... Um, it came to a point in our culture in Brazil where people, their evangelical Christians are called by the Bibles. Um, so that's why we are the people of the Bible. Some, some people call us that, say, they say that our religion is the religion of the book or the religion of the Bible. Because it is, and here, that's what we try to do, is to have always everything that we believe, that we do, is based, is rooted on the Bible. 
We're not doing anything aside apart from that or that contradicts the Bible. But then it brings us one question. Why do we hold the Bible in such a high esteem? The answer may seem simple um, because the thing is we know what the Bible is. But you then, you might ask me, but doesn't anyone, everyone know what the Bible is? Isn't that obvious to every person, the whole world, what the Bible is? And I have to tell you that not really. It's not really that obvious. Because even you that came here this morning, you may think that, oh, I have that figured out. If you ask me what is the Bible, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, and I'll know. But I would just invite you to consider a few things before answering this question, what is the Bible? Because the simple answer could be it's a group or it's um, a collection of books, 66 books, 39 from the Old Testament, um, 27 from the New Testament. But what do you say about this collection? What is the Bible for you? I just want you to answer within your heart right now. What is the Bible to you? As I was preparing for uh, my exam to become a pastor, uh, I still remember that we were driving all the way from, we were living in Rio, and the church we were attending was a one hour and a half drive from Rio. Um, and I was driving there, we were driving there that weekend, uh, and I was preparing myself to the exam to become a pastor, and as I just asked, Andresa, would you please ask me the questions? And you know, I'll, as I'm driving, I'll try to give you the answer, and you can check if the answers are good, if it's right, if it's tight. And then she was sometimes asking a few questions, and before I got the chance to answer it, Alvaro, in the back seat, would come with an answer. And I would say, like, that's not for you. I'm the one being examined, not you. Um, but the funny thing is, if I ask Alvaro, um, what is the Bible? I'm sure, because I've done that, I've tested <laughs> before doing it, um, that he will say that the Bible is the Word of God. And... And then, but what does that mean? What does that mean, the Bible being the Word of God? Does that mean, and there is a very deep theological question in that, is that, does the Bible contains the Word of God, or it is, the whole Bible is the Word of God? The difference is, if we say that the Bible contains the Word of God, it means there are a few parts in the Bible, maybe many, there are the Word of God, but there are some other parts there are not. But if we say that the whole Bible, as it is, is the Word of God, we're meaning that every little word, every comma, every dot is the Word of God. And there's a big difference between one thing and the other. And again, I've asked Alvaro, is the whole Bible the Word of God, or there are parts in there that are not? And he said, like, no, it's, it's, you know, it's all the Word of God. There's not even one word in there There isn't the Word of God. But not everyone consider the Bible being like this. 
And from that point, when we start talking about the Bible, many questions may appear. Uh, like, okay, Marcus, you said that the Bible has, is, a, is a collection of 66 books. Why those 66 books? Why not 68? Why not 60? You know, why this book and not that? You know, there, it was found a new gospel of I don't know who. Um, and why isn't this part of the scripture then? How, old those, how were those, those books chosen? You know, who picked those books, those 66? And how can it be? And that's the, one of the most tricky ones. How can this be the word of God if it was written by man? Instead of thinking <laughs> on every possible question that I could think of and answering and trying to answer that this morning, uh, what I'll do is I'll take a different path with you. And I want you to look, and I want us to look, into the main character of the book. And who is the main character of the Bible? I don't think you've been reading it. <laughs> who is the main character? It's Jesus. And the Interesting thing is that even the most skeptical, non-Christian knowledge that Jesus existed. And that he was a Galilean Jew and a carpenter. That's why I put this picture. And because Jesus was a Jew, he was part of a Jew family, we can implicate that he then believed in the Old Testament what we call the Old Testament, because it was not called by them that time, and it's not even called today by, by the Jew as Old Testament. It's called Tanakh. Tanakh means a group of, actually three groups of books. Um, the first one is the Torah. Um, you might be familiar with that, but there are two other groups of books, um, the Nevi'im and the Ketubim. And how can we know that Jesus believed that? Because, you know, we've seen people growing up here in church, and they don't actually really believe in the Bible, as I just said in the beginning. Uh, so how can I say that Jesus, just because he was a Jew, um, he believed in the Tanakh? And the second point is, Jesus established a new faith. You know, his followers, they begin a new religion. So isn't it different from the Tanakh? Isn't it, you know, a new thing? If he believed that maybe he wouldn't start a new faith or a new religion, he would just keep going with what he's got. But there are a few things that we can study into and find out about what Jesus said about the Tanakh and what his disciples said about the Tanakh. One of the things is, in 2 Timothy 3.16, we started reading this verse today. It's written that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and in righteousness. Do you know who wrote this? Who wrote this was Paul. The apostle. He was one of the, he was a Jew, 
And he was one of the persecutors of the early Christian church. And then he became a Christian. One of Paul's mission fellows was Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke wrote that after three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Luke puts Jesus in the Jewish temple as a young boy, sitting among the teachers, listening, asking them questions, and he was not disagreeing with them. And how can we know that Jesus was not disagreeing with their teachings? It's obvious because at the end of the verse, they say, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So it means that he, everything that he was saying and answering was exactly according to the Jew beliefs of the Tanakh. So we can then see that Jesus really believed the Tanakh. Wouldn't it be easier for Jesus or for his disciples to say, well, you know, the Jewish sacred book is not completely right. Because they were trying to establish a new faith, a new standard. So it would be easier to say that all you got until now is not really right. You know, we, you, know we, you have to take this book out. You have to put this book in. Now let me just write something new here. And now, okay, now you got it. But that was not what happened. He validated the Tanakh. And we can see that by what Matthew, another disciple, wrote in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, and Matthew quotes, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus is saying that, as I said in the beginning, every single dot, every single comma, everything in the Bible is the word of God and everything will be accomplished. Well, you are probably thinking right now that some people may ask you, okay, Jesus believed in the Tanakh. So why should I believe in the Tanakh? You know, why should I believe in Jesus? That brings us to the New Testament. And this picture here is the picture of the pool of Bethesda. It is one of the stories in the Bible that for many years, some um, archaeologists and some historians would say that it didn't exist. You know, there was a place created by them because they could never find this pool. And if it was so important, if it was so big, how come they could not, you know, by doing research and, and, and all, find it? But after many years and a lot of research, they did. They found it. And that's why I put the picture. Because actually, the New Testament is far the most documented ancient text that exists. It means that 
It is an ancient book. It is the ancient book with the more copies with closer dates to the originals. Just as a comparison, there are some philosophy books like Plato writings that we actually have only one copy and the date is like hundreds of years after it was supposedly written. And nobody questions that that was written by Plato. But many people question about the Christian faith and what we believe in the Bible. But actually, the New Testament is far the most documented ancient text that exists. And another impressive fact, as I was telling you, for example, about the Pool of Bethesda, is the next, that the New Testament and its factual accuracy. The Bible and the New Testament, even though Luke said, and if you go and, and read the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of Acts, he will say, well, I'm organizing historically so you can understand. It's not history, the, the modern concept that we have now. So even though uh, the, the New Testament was never meant to be a historical book, as I said, at least not in the modern sense of history, the accuracy of the facts reported by the books in the New Testament and also in the Old Testaments are very well documented and acknowledged by serious historians and archaeologists. Actually, what happened with the years, and that's a funny story actually, because you may think, okay, who would get the Bible and say, I'm going to go out there and find everything, you know, that is written in here. You know, if the city here really existed, or if this king was really a king, or if this battle really happened, you would say that would be a Christian. Or if you're talking about the Old Testament, you would say that would be a Jew, scientist at least. But actually, the funny story is, a lot of people who does that, they're not Christians. They're atheists. And what they're trying to do, actually, is to say that the Bible is wrong. But wonder what they've been finding over and over and over that even things that they thought was ridiculous was true. And they've been finding cities, they've been finding places that battles happened um, just to prove them wrong and to make them become Christians because a lot of them did. After researching a lot, a lot of them did. Uh, I know a few names. I may talk about this another day. <laughs> And actually, every person that has tried destroying the Christian faith, like seriously, became Christians. Because they were not, not, not only not able to do it, but they found out a lot of truth in the Bible. That, again, brings us back to Jesus. And there is one quote. There is one concept in the New Testament that is very tough, is that Jesus actually declares he's God. You won't find, and people may ask you, and you may ask me, where, where does, you know, where is that quote where Jesus is saying, I am God? There isn't. There isn't at least like this, because it was not needed. And I'll show you here in this verse is actually Jesus saying this. Let's read that. It's John chapter 8, verses 56 to 59, where Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it 
and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I know it's difficult in English. <laughs> um, in Portuguese, it's much easier to understand because the verb to be is actually split it into two. Uh, we have two different verbs you know, that would tra be translated in English like to be. And the concept is that the verb to be in English can be used for something that you are at this point, but can also be used as something that's continuous happening. So when you say, I am a man, it's not going to change. I was born a man. I am a man. I'll keep being a man. I'll die as a man. But when I say I'm a basketball player, you will look like you're kind of chubby for a basketball <laughs> player, aren't you? The thing is, I was a basketball player, but I'm not a basketball player anymore. I'm not hiding the ball within my shirt, just for you to know. So the thing is, I am not anymore a basketball player. I was. So I cannot say I am a basketball player. So the same thing happens to the Jew concept of being um, in the present when you say I am. Because the thing is, they consider, and, and there's a little philosophy in here, Right now, and the, the idea is that we are all changing all the time. So, just as the example I gave you, uh, once I was a basketball player, and by that time I could say I am a basketball player, but then now I'm not anymore. It changed. And the concept is that only God can say I am because He's the only one that is being. So, He is the only one who was who is and who will always be. So a Jew will never say, would never say, I am whatever. I am a doctor. Because even a man will say, one day I'm not going to be a man anymore. One day I'm going to be warm food. That's what I'm going to be. You know, and, and that will be changed. And so the idea here is that only God can say I am. And we may remember this by remembering what happened. And you may be, uh, comfortable with the, the text uh, in Exodus uh, 3, 13 to 14, when uh, God presented himself to Moses. And uh, Moses asked God, Okay, God, I'll go there, but suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then, what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. Israelites I am has sent me to you. So, by saying I am, what his listeners understood that time when Jesus said that, 
was that he was saying, I am God. Other evidence about the fact that Jesus claimed to be God may be found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. And it says that some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. Another thing that they believed was that only God could forgive sins. And it's obvious. It makes a lot of sense. When you sin, you sin against God. Because God is the one who is perfect. So if David does something to me and I'm mad at him, can you forgive him by me? For me? Not really. He has to come to me and say, hey, Marcus, I'm sorry. And then I'll be the one able to say, okay, that's okay. Yeah, you're good. I forgive you. No one else can do that. Who could forgive someone for sinning against God but God? You know, doesn't it make sense? So that's exactly this. Only God can forgive sins because every time you sin, you're sinning against God. So when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, they say that he was blaspheming because he was saying, I can forgive sins. And so what he's saying, I am God. Because you have sinned against me, I can tell you, you're forgiven. Because you've sinned against me, and I'm God. That's what they heard when he said, I forgive you. They heard Jesus saying, I am God. And the thing is, you may say, well, it's still not very straightforward. You know, he never really said the words, I'm God. And they were just kind of understanding this, but, you know, they, they might be wrong. But the thing is that Jesus not only never correct them um, about this, saying, well, you know, it's not really it. You're getting it wrong. I'm not really God. You know, I know what you're thinking, but it's not it. He never did that. And I'm not saying only to the people, you know, around him, they're more distant from him. I'm even saying about his disciples. And we can actually find a lot of places in the whole New Testament, in the writings of his disciples, saying that they believed that Jesus was God. And they walked with Jesus. They were there with him. So what that means? What that means is that you have a big, big problem this morning. And what problem is that? This man will help you. You know who is this guy? He's a Northern Irish, famous author, uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, that was probably the first Northern Irish guy I met. Um, and the thing is, his, in his thoughts, uh, he actually came with this idea that when 
you read through the scriptures and you realize that Jesus claimed to be God, you, you're in trouble. Because you now have to take a decision. Either you believe in that or not. And so he created what he called a trilemma. Why a trilemma? Because you only have three options. There are only three ways to choose. And there's the graphic behind me. And you may see that if it's true, then Jesus is God. And if it's false, you only have two options. One of the options is he knew he wasn't God. But he let people believe in that. So he was not being really sincere. So he was a liar. And when you read through the scriptures, why would a liar be killed by his lie? If he is a liar and what he wants is to make people come after him, you know, at the end, when he was about to be dead by that, he would say, oh, oh, oh no, 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 I was just kidding. You got it wrong. I'm not God. You know, that's, that's not what I meant. You don't have to crucify me for that. I was just, you know, I was just a joke. I'm not the first stand-up comedy guy in the history. You know, that was not really funny, but, you know. But if he was sincere and really thought, oh, I'm God, but he wasn't, it makes him a lunatic. And when we read through the scriptures and his thoughts and his teachings, he doesn't look like a lunatic. The fact is that many people try to say and will say to you, well, Jesus was a wise teacher. He was a good philosopher or a prophet. But because of what he said, he cannot be any of those things. For if he didn't know, as I was saying, if he said that he was God and he didn't know that he wasn't God, he would be a lunatic, delusional. You would, we would see that in his teachings. And then again, you would say, well, you know, but his disciples, they kind of, you know, they could have laughed this out of the, the texts of the Bible, you know, his delusional part. But then again, why would they follow a lunatic? And why would they die for a lunatic? So it means that they actually believed also that Jesus was God. So it shows us that really Jesus really believed that because he died for it. And also his disciples, they died for it too. So there is only another possibility is that he was sincerely lying. But does he, again, as I said, does he look like a liar? Would he die for a lie like this so young with many possibilities? You know, maybe he would find another way or run away. He knew that they were coming to arrest him and he stayed. Why would he do that if he was just lying, just trying to entertain or I don't know what it would be his purpose with that. So actually, if you go through the scriptures and you really read it, there is only one possibility left. And the possibility is that he was right. You know, that he was God, and the Bible is his word. So, I ask you again this, I ask you again this question. 
What is the Bible? May you answer me this? Will you agree with me that the Bible is the Word of God? So the Bible is the Word of God. And then you have another problem. And the problem is that one. By saying that the Bible is the Word of God, it actually means that God has already spoke to you. It means that every word of God to you is already in your inbox. You got a message from God in WhatsApp. It's written there, God. And, you know, you got a notification there saying, there's a message for you. Will you read it? How fast do you visualize your WhatsApp messages? How fast? I know some people will take a couple of days. But even with that, they will not take a month or a year or maybe never read the message. They will eventually do it. How fast do you try to answer them when you read it? And I mean to your loved ones. Okay, I'm just making it a little harder there. Because sometimes you receive a message that from someone you don't really want to talk to you. So you may not even visualize it and pretend, oh, never received it, and just maybe erase it from your you know, WhatsApp. But if it's from your wife, you better read it and, and answer it right away. Um, so God wrote a book to you to talk to you with all the directions you may need to go through your life. How long will you keep God on hold? How long will you take to answer Him and not visualize His messages? You are actually the only one losing here by not reading it, studying it, and trying to live and answer, give your personal answer to that. Let us pray. Father God, we receive your word and we believe that the Bible is your word. So thank you for that. Thank you for caring, for leaving us a message that we can read and, and have every direction that we might need in our lives from day zero to the last day. Uh, thank you for caring that much you know, um, and making that so easily uh, achievable for us. And, you know, anyone can have a Bible. God, we want, we want to commit. We want to commit to read your word and learn from it and understand it and apply it to our lives. So help us with that. Help us to, to read your word, to read your message every day. Because we know that we, we are the ones who actually need it. You don't, you don't need us to read it. We are the ones who actually need it. So help us understand and live that. Not only understand with our minds, but really, really live that. Thank you, Jesus, for your word this morning. 
Thank you because we may know that you spoke to us even though we didn't feel anything, any chills, any uh, warm coming from inside. Even though nothing of this happened, we may know that you spoke to us because when we read your words, when we read our Bible, you are speaking to us. We can know that. Thank you for that. So thank you for speaking to us whenever we want you to speak to us. Thank you for being there always for us. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for being able to be here in fellowship with other Christians, brothers and sisters and share your word and the passion for your word. Help us live the Bible standards for life because we could not live by ourselves. So we need your help. Thank you for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.